This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash... Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for a bigger jobs, try the superior strength of hefty large black bags. You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 139 is Don Ralph of the New York band Life in a Blender. They've just released their 10th studio album, but have been going since the late 80s. You are right now listening to Mounds of Flesh from their first album, 1988's Welcome to the Jelly Days. We're going to be discussing The Ocean is a Black and Rolling Tongue from their new one, Satsuma. Then looking back to Falmouth from We Already Have Birds That Sing, 2014. And then way back to Chicken Dance from Two Legs Bad, 1997. We'll end by listening to Soul Deliverer, another one from Satsuma. For more information, please see lifeinablender.net. For more about this podcast, check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Make sure you're subscribed directly to our feed. And if you want to support this podcast and get your episodes ad-free, you can do so at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. That will also give you my notes to the show that break down the structure of the songs that we're talking about. So I will have played a little bit of Mounds of Flesh from Welcome to the Jelly Days, 1988. I'm glad you're playing that. That song, just recently, some fans from Europe, it seemed, found it online on some John Peel compilation that I was unaware of. And then I somehow stumbled on this thread where these musical squirrely types were tuning in and finding this and saying, who wrote this song? Where's this song coming from? So that was kind of, it's a thrill to be appreciated. And they, they found this song and appreciated it and they couldn't find it for a while. And then they found out it was Life in a Blender. And if you go on YouTube, there's somebody who posted the song and then they, they have identified that it's our band and they're all excited. So that was great. A resurgence for that song that never had a surgence. At that stage, I mean, that's sort of during the heyday of They Might Be Giants. I know you have a couple people in your band that have played with them, both New York bands. We're going to get to the new stuff. 2020's The Ocean is a Black and Rolling Tongue from Satsuma, the new album. Certainly, even in the olden days, they were not all quote unquote novelty songs. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about that appellation in the first place. Just having a sense of humor in writing something seems like it should not, you know, make it go on Dr. Demento. But yeah, can you say something about this journey? Your 10 albums later, this song in particular is a pretty dark one. It's the closing one of the the album. We did start out, I think, more humorous and had songs that you could say were more novelty songs. Songs about dogs and beer and humorous things like that. But I still think the music itself was always not just a joke. So, you know, we were writing songs that were musically sound all along. Although I think over the years we've developed, you know, maybe we started more just as a rock band and then musically we've added on and became more orchestrated and have the strings and have the horns, etc. So uh, how did we wind up with this dark, dark song? This is probably the least funny song. There's often a sense of humor going on through the songs, as you see. But this song has no sense of humor. The five of the songs on the album are based on books because I've been writing songs for this project called the Bushwick Book Club, which is started by Susan Wong in Brooklyn. And it's a great project where singer-songwriters from all around the country have been coming together and writing songs about a particular work. So this song was written about Jonathan Ames's You Were Never Really Here, 
which later became a movie with Joaquin Phoenix, and it's directed by uh, Lynn Ramsey, and I guess it's equally dark and frightening and brutal. He always writes humorous stuff, so this was a real departure for him. In a way, this made a departure for us because we wrote about this particular work, which has you know absolutely no sense of humor, just like uh, Jonathan Ames's novella. This is a dip into the, our darkest area. Drowning is black and sudden 
Let's talk sonically. Before we get into this, can you say something about the type of collaboration? I was about to ask you about this percussion thing that you start off with. Are you even involved in that? Is this the kind of question I should be asking you? I see you're given the songwriting credit. Oh, I wish I prepared for that. Right. Yeah, I don't even know. I, I See, that's a great question. Why wasn't I curious enough to ask our producer guitarist where he got that sound? I don't even know if the drummer did that or what, but that is a good sound. And I don't know where it comes from. Well, clearly you had an idea. It's a very strong move to make, as we're going to hear in two of the songs today, to make the introduction have a completely different vocal tone. We're going to not make it, I guess, when you come back and are singing this melody that's at the beginning later in the song, you're doing more of your Tom Waits voice. (laughs) (laughs) But here, you know, it's drought. You can't even really tell what this is. Can you say something about that choice to subsume the vocal at this point? What are you doing mood wise to allow it to open up later? Well, what comes to mind is I mean, Al's playing with so many different effects where the vocals are coming forward, moving back, you know, sounds are rushing in, rushing back. I do think he's getting a bit of a ocean feel in a strange way. There's many more effects here that I think are very interesting, and they add to this dark texture of the whole song. What he did with it, he took it from just a rudimentary basic song and just took it to a whole other planet with the, the production on this one. Yeah, it's almost like a Sonic Youth thing at the beginning here with the two guitars, with the reverb soaked in. So what is the order of operations in terms of, you know, I assume you come with the lyric and chords intact, and then who are you working with first? How are you layering this stuff? I'm coming into the band all together with just the guitar and the song. Really basic. How it winds up here on the recording. I mean, this one is just so far removed from how we would do it live, too, because he's just bringing in so many great different effects. And then layered in top of that, bringing uh, another element in is all the horns. And uh, Mark Lerner, the bass player, arranged all the horns. And then we had, you know, just these great horn players come in. And I really just love the horns on this part. I love how they come in and go away and come in again. Just great horn players. I'd love to say their names, too. Jackie Coleman and Drew Krasner and Kevin Moringer. So I've gotten the comment before. I really like to orchestrate my songs, but they're very lyric oriented. And, and somebody telling me like, you know, it's kind of better when it's just you and your guitar because then you can actually pay attention to the lyrics. What is your take on that? You clearly you're not threatened by having a very swingy horn riff covering up your chorus, you know, and they're nicely balanced. It's not like you're lost in there, but it certainly divides the focus somewhat. It just supports the lyrics totally here. I don't think it ever gets lost for me when we have bring in the horns and the strings. But I, I can see your point. You know, you have somebody maybe like Loudon Wainwright or someone who you think just has straight ahead, humorous, poignant songs that are more just him and the guitar. And that's how you often see him play. And you really focus on the lyrics. I can see how that just puts the focus on the lyrics and the melody. I think there's room to support it all. As this album demonstrates. Yes. Well, and, and certainly you don't get the dynamic changes that you get here this codeine part is it the bridge is it the post chorus do you have (laughs) have an idea of what we've now had this swinging heavy chorus and now we're gonna go into this spacey part yeah the softer quieter part the codeine part i mean it's a bridge of sorts but the song doesn't feel like it's following a normal structure i guess of just chorus bridge etc i mean the fact that the bridge it happens more than once makes it not a bridge i think that's the rule yeah (laughs) Yeah. it's not a bridge oh you're going back over the bridge again okay all right one extra part to keep things interesting but uh, but yeah we come back to it 
What is the image? Is there a particular scene in the book that you're trying to channel here? Because it sounds like somebody's being followed by guilt, something like that. But then, you know, I'm afraid of drowning. The ocean's going to cover me up. So get free of the ocean. But when you're free of the ocean, sometimes the ocean's all you hear. And now I want to float away on the ocean. I'm not exactly sure how the metaphors are working here. Analysis to decipher here. It's okay to say no, just so you know. (laughs) Okay to say no. Well, let me go back to the codeine. I mean, in the book, there is a character taking codeine to make, there's so much misery and darkness in the book. And then people trying to escape all that darkness. Where are you escaping? You're escaping with the ocean. You know, maybe you're swimming out into the dark ocean. That's one thing with the codeine, just trying to use that as a drug to wipe out all the bleakness, the white noise, too. There's some character putting on a white noise machine trying to erase everything. So the novella is about a hitman with a hammer killing off these people. He's he's a just hitman. He's trying to save some young woman or girl even who's involved in some sort of uh, sex ring who's you know been trapped and he's trying to get her out. So he's killing off people who deserve to be killed. But everything's dark and everything's horribly bleak in this book. <laughs> There's not one ounce of humor. And so, yeah, so all these images, I think the ocean, trying to escape into the ocean, trying to escape into drugs, codeine, trying to escape with noise, white noise machine. The girl in this is the Lisa. I was kind of confused there. At, you know, you're all in first person, and then it's just the second time the bridge comes in, whatever this is, we're calling this. By the time the drugs kick in, she'll have no remembrance. You're introducing a new character here, like this whole image of her counting versus you're not counting on violence. You know, is that imagery from the book or is this something you came up with? Lisa's in the book. Lisa's the character. He's the, the, the protagonist is trying to save. And she's drugged up and sort of trapped being on the drugs. She's kept docile in the environment that she's in. And um, yeah, so she's another character from the book. And I'm, I'm bringing in those elements and, and, and weaving them. Did I know exactly what I'm trying to get at? Maybe not totally. Just hoping it, uh, the song would lead the way as I got into it. She's counting. Why was she counting? Well, I, you know, that's a good question. (laughs) She was just counting, getting lost, you know, only as a way to just sort of block out everything out. Another way of blocking things out. How do you just not think of all the horribleness? I think there is something in the book where she was just counting. And just that process was helping keep all the darkness away. Before we go on, it's commercial time. Oh, my. Today, I want to tell you about... Masterclass, of course, where you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, at your own pace. You can learn about creativity from Issa Rae, skateboarding from Tony Hawk, poker strategy from Phil Ivey, and of course, I've told you about the dozen-plus music courses from folks like Alicia Keys, St. Vincent, Carlos Santana, Timbaland, Tom Morello, Herbie Hancock, Hans Zimmer, and Reba McIntyre. There are over a 100 courses. That thing you've always wanted to do is closer than you think. As I've spent more time with Masterclass, I have been delving out of my immediate comfort zone into things that would be good skills for any musician to have. And this time I looked at Chris Voss's The Art of Negotiation. He's a former FBI lead hostage negotiator teaching you communication skills and strategies to help you get more of what you want every day, like gigs, like better record deals. If you are a socially awkward, an artiste, I am too fancy to be wheedling for things. Well, these are practical skills like tactical empathy, mirroring the person that you are negotiating with, not just saying the right thing, but using the right tone and inflection, reading people's body language, 
this is just fascinating stuff and yes, useful. And like all masterclass courses, it's impeccably shot, wonderfully edited, comes with class notes. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass. And as a nakedly examined music listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash examined. That's masterclass.com slash examined for 15% off masterclass. Now, we all know how a VPN protects your privacy and security online, right? But I didn't know till recently, and it's taken my TV watching game to the next level. You can use a VPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries and get that internationally licensed content through Netflix, through Hulu, through BBC iPlayer, YouTube, etc. So, for instance, it's on my computer. It was super fast to install. I just open the interface with a couple clicks. I am now logged in from the UK. I refresh my Netflix page. And, hey, there's stuff like American Idol and America's Got Talent that are not on the American page. There's an Oasis documentary I was watching, Star Trek Discovery. And you can install this on all your devices, on Apple TV, on Android TVs, Fire TV, Chromebook, iPhone, on the router itself. Now, there are many VPN options, but ExpressVPN is ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD no problem. If you visit my special link right now, expressvpn.com slash NEM, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash NEM. Even in the new year, it's hard to start a new routine, but if you're one of the 34% of Americans who made a resolution to be less stressed, Headspace is here to help. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. It is one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, and it's got 600,000 five-star reviews, over 60 million downloads. Maybe you need help falling asleep, focusing in the morning. This is true. Yesterday, I was really feeling stressed and demotivated, had some podcast prep stuff I just needed to get to and just didn't want to, couldn't focus. And I pulled up one of the three-minute SOS meditations. I knew this was going to help just calm my brain down and let me get to it, and it totally worked. I've been doing this off and on for over a month now. It really just changed my attitude toward my brain. I think maybe I saw meditation as this hubristic attempt to reprogram yourself. But the way that Andy Puticombe guides you here is much more relaxed, reflective, accords with my style. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. You deserve to feel happier. And Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash N-E-M. That's headspace.com slash N-E-M for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash N-E-M today. All right, let's get back to it. Well, let's get the second song on the table. We're going back to 2014, Foulmouth from We Already Have Birds That Sing. Can you say a little where you're at with this one? Yes, yeah, so it's actually Falmouth is a town in Cape Cod as you come at the base of Cape Cod as you're heading into the mainland. And I mean, I was thinking of two friends who maybe haven't seen each other, but know each other really well. And they're getting back together. And one has a drinking problem and the other is saying, you know, hey, I'm going to come down and I'm going to see you and I'm going to help you with your problems that you're 
trying to overcome. And in fact, I'll come and I'll bring some of your old stuff that might cheer you up. I'll bring your weathered ball and your record crates with your Aerosmith and your Killer Queen. I think I brought those up specifically because I was thinking of me growing up and I was always poaching records from my sister's album collection and she had the ones that stick at her Aerosmith and Killer Queen are prominent in my head. So I was thinking of those. And then um, anyway, this character drives to his friend's place. He's there trying to lift his spirits. In my mind, they kind of (laughs) go off the rails themselves. They're eating chicken. They're going to the roller derby. They're having a good time and maybe having a bit too much of a good time. Maybe maybe he's I don't know how much he is helping his friend here. Maybe they're drinking again. So I leave it all ambiguous about what's going on. Slipping back to Falmouth off the Cape Haven't had a drop but feeling great And I heard the news that your chips are down And you're getting yourself straight Can you bust a move like a bust a move You know I'm feeling great Cause when you're in the dance You gotta dance And when you stop for a breath You hope the room won't be spinning A movable lock can tip your way And if you give it a chance You know the things can just be beginning Like flowers Like flowers Like flowers Like flowers If you stick around We can work things out Get some chicken and talk things over We'll get some tickets To the roller derby Calling out a name Smashes in the wall It doesn't
I was sold on this one with the opening very jazzy horn chords there at the beginning. The horns are not even officially part of the band, right? They're an optional thing that must be added as sort of the last element. Right. We already have the song already going. And then, uh, again, Mark Glerner. I owe all, all to Mark. He envisions these great horn parts. And then, again, on this album, it was Jackie and Kevin. And I can't think of who are the other horn players are. But they came in again and did Mark's horn parts in, over this. But it, they seem to fit, again, perfectly. And a different vocal persona, not a trace of the Tom Waits to be heard here. I haven't thought about my vocal personas too much, but I, now that you bring it up, I think I have my usual voice that you're hearing now that I'm probably using on that song, normal voice, and that I do like Tom White so much and that style that I think I sometimes would gravitate into that zone and get all growly and low. Yeah, I didn't feel bad about that because Tongue Cut Sparrow, the song right before this, is completely like <laughs> the full-on Tom Waits voice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which I start to cough if I try to do that too long for my voice. Hopefully those vocals are just all a nod towards Tom Waits, who I, I like so much, but um, not feeling like a direct uh, mimicking. I also wanted to bring this song in because as a contrast, obviously we have not had too much wackiness so far, but this one is at least flirting with sincerity. I mean, it's a story though. You're saying there are elements from your personal life, but this is not a message to somebody in particular. This is a scene, a literary exercise of some sort. Yeah, a vignette of uh, two friends getting together on some level here and dealing with some problem. And I know in the, the lyric, a movable luck can tip your way sometimes. And I think that's the message that he's telling to his friend, you know, not to give up all hope that a movable luck can. You think it's a movable, but it can tip your way. OK, I thought there was something wistful here. I was hearing when I got your call as when I got the call, as in like, this is about a dead person or something. But there's definitely some sort of nostalgia about, you know, when things were normal, I guess, or potential rejection. If you stick around, I don't know. Am I reading too much into that? There's a wistfulness that you're trying to recapture something that you had. They're old friends trying to get back and get back something that they once had. So, I mean, there's some humorous things going on. With, I don't know, somehow when you say, well, eat some chicken and hang out, for some reason, eating some chicken feels like a funny thing. <laughs> Can you bust a move like I bust a move? Throwing that in, how are you doing, you know, is a choice. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I like how, let me actually just play, going into the second verse here. When you're in the dance, you gotta dance. And when you stop for a breath, you hope the room won't be spinning. A movable the fact that we're introducing that beautiful violin riff there and the bass is just so carefully a little bit funky in places. You know, it's very straightforward. It's pushing the song forward, boom, dun, dun, boo, doo, doo, you know, but then throwing in these little hiccups. It sounds like you are very, very light on how you direct the band, that this is all your many years of playing together. Pretty much very light, and they bring in what they hear. When I bring in the basic bones of the song, they bring on all their parts pretty much. I mean, there'll be occasions when we say... Okay, Ken, why don't you try to play this drum part, etc. But, you know, usually it's just everyone bringing in what they hear and, and us uh, hashing it out. So did I say I hear something a little funky here? Probably not. <laughs> Can you bust a move like I bust a move? That should be the, where it funks up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, overall, it's not very funky at all, I'd say. I don't know what the whole overall vibe is. But um, I mean, I guess when the horns come in later and the chorus, maybe it gets a little more upbeat and funky. 
Well, it's that dual guitar thing. I assume that arpeggiated two chord guitar riff that is the foundation of the song. Is that something you would bring in or you just brought in the chordal equivalent of that? Right. I was just bringing in the chords and both guitar. Well, Dave Moody plays cello sometimes and he plays rhythm guitar and Al Houghton's playing the lead guitar. They really worked out the two guitar parts that are sort of maybe interweaving there. And I'm really coming in just, I'm a real just basher on the guitar, strumming the chords. I'm not fancy at all. I'm just lucky to have these guys or have some musical savvy where I feel like I'll get the tune and the words, but pretty doltish when it comes to these sophisticated parts that these guys come up with. I thank them. If you stick around we can work things out, get some chicken and talk things over. We'll get some chicken. So this just seems unusual. I mean, when you're talking about going and eating chicken, there's something sort of New Orleans that's suggested there. But this is almost like marching band. The fact that this is so trombone heavy on the onbeats. There's some segment there that I did hear some marching band in. It was in New Orleans and there was some football game and they were playing some. Bam, bam. Like that. And I thought, yeah, I've got this in the back of my head. And as I'm writing this song, which just that part was uh, seeping in and influencing me as I'm writing a song that was already on the table. I also noticed in there that he's not playing hi-hat, your drummer. He's playing rim shot for the, you know, some percussive thing. But that is not symbol, which just gives it a complete, again, takes it to, you don't do that in rock. I mean, to make the thing, the eighth note, a steady rim shot or something like that, whatever that is. Oh, how I wish the drummer were here to explain the, the <laughs> mysteries of how he plays the drums. All right. I'm just pointing out. But but that's good to hear because uh, I often think the drums get ignored in a way they're just straight ahead. And I think there are some signature parts, the drums, in a lot of these songs. I mean, from Mounds of Flesh earlier, that drum part, it's very simple, but that really became a, a real signature part of the song. And that was a different drummer came up with that. And then in the ocean, too, he's, that drum part seems just very distinctive. I feel like people remember the guitar riff or whatever, but not always. There's a drum riff almost in some of these songs. Yes. Well, I always paid a lot of attention to the rhythm section and as a bass player who likes to play the drums and is not that good at drums, but certainly that's what sells a lot of the songs for me, that you've got a very high profile bass line really driving the thing and that the drums are certainly not just like, I've heard the song once and I'll play through it. Like <laughs> you could do that in a lot of bands, but to keep every song very distinct in that way. They really know the that musical aspect that I, I just sit back and go like, oh, I like that, but I don't understand totally what they're doing. <laughs> so as your level of interest in arrangement and that kind of thing has changed over the years, I'm just thinking of XTC where, oh, we have a guy in the band that can do the strings. Well, 10 years later, I want to arrange the strings now. I've figured that out. I want to inject more of my melody into, it seems like, to have this many years of hands-off and yet you haven't had a solo album, is that just a matter of your strictly literary melody approach to song that you're kind of fine keeping in your lane? Or are you putting your fingers all over the place? I guess it might be crazy to say these are all solo albums in a way because it's all my songs. And, you know, I've been, again, lucky to have these guys support my songs. If I had to support their songs, I don't feel like I know exactly what I do to support their songs. And Mark and Al, they've had their separate musical projects, too, where they do maybe more of things they wanted to do in their voice. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Is that despair? Is that... It's okay. It doesn't matter. I wasn't quite sure what mood I was supposed to be getting from. We're describing some activity. It, oh, it just doesn't matter. I feel like here's a guy who wants to help this other guy. 
with a problem, but he's maybe not the best person to help him. He's like, you know, you should check me out, Dance. And he's, he's into himself. And I think he thinks the main thing was maybe we're not solving everything here, but we're having a good time. <laughs> So it doesn't matter, you know, we'll get together. We'll have some chicken. We'll go to the roller derby. Even the calling out her name, the fact that that's the thing that gets repeated. Seemingly, the her in question is just somebody involved in the roller derby. It's not like a prime character. It's a matter of just something is breaking down and this happens to be the line. Right. That line just seemed right at the right point in that song. What does that all mean? I'm not sure. I mean, they're getting caught up in the moment. That's the peak of a moment of getting together. This character that he's trying to help him is maybe lost. And he's like, you know what? It doesn't matter about all your problems. Here we are. We're at the roller derby. We're calling out her name. We're calling out her name. And that's what we love to do together. Here we are. And yet, yes, as you repeat it, it sort of gets more desperate and... (laughs) Right, right. So there is that, yeah. As as soon as you think everything's good, maybe there is some kind of desperation. Well, enough weirdness. We need to turn to chicken dance of just a regular... You think that's going to be less weird? Okay, good. (laughs) So this was the first thing I heard of yours. It's on Spotify. It's your first album. So I kind of thought this was your first album, even though it is, what is your third or fourth? Something like that. 1997, Two Legs Bad. And you started nearly 10 years earlier. So there had been some miles on the machine by this point. So this is the first thing I'd ever heard of you guys. And I felt the need to just listen to this compulsively for like (laughs) a week. Uh, (laughs) So clearly I was going into this, picking what songs. I will give the rest of the album and the subsequent album another chance, but this is the one I had to get back to. It's such just a weird structure. And, you know, I understand after watching the video and looking at the lyrics, like there is a coherent story, but it just seemed, what the hell am I even listening to? Like something that is (laughs) clearly reacting to and playing off of Nirvana-esque, the heavy sounds of the time or of a few years earlier. Say a little to warn folks of what they're about to hear. Well, first of all, the song started because I was really into this arcade in Chinatown on Mott Street and had all the normal arcade games, Pac-Man, whatever, back in the day. But then I had two unusual (laughs) arcade attractions. One was a chicken that played tic-tac-toe and you'd put in your 50 cents and out would come. Those are world over. Yes. (laughs) Those are world over, you know, but but, the kids today, they're missing out. They don't know about these. You know, they just know the electronic game. No animal abuse in arcades anymore. No home entertainment centers or arcade games feature a live chicken anymore. So, I mean, this was something that I felt had to be captured. So, yeah, the tic-tac-toe chicken would come out. The bird always won, as I remembered it, too. You had the bird, you'd play it. Then a sign would light up. It goes, bird wins, bird wins. So that was good. I could have written a song about that. But then the other attraction with the live chicken was the dancing chicken. And you, again, put 50 cents in. The chicken struts out on this plate that was spinning. And the, the rumor was that maybe there was a slight electronic impulse that went through the plate and sent a little jolt into the chicken so it would act like it was dancing a bit more. So from that, I thought, what if about the businessman who goes in there and sees this chicken and gets a bit obsessed? And this whole song is about being obsessed with that chicken and maybe that character seeing himself as the chicken trapped in the box, not seeing the light of day, not seeing the sunshine, going more and more down the drain mentally with this obsession, dragging business associates. Come see this chicken. You have to see this chicken. Why? I don't know. I still know how to move my stuff The plate is wired 
one of the things I loved about this is just the structure is so weird that you've got this really kind of painfully long introduction of lo-fi. We're going to make this sound bad. You are not going to let this is the opening to our record. And we're going to have a full 36 seconds. <laughs> like I can totally see, you know, like you have in Ocean where you do that for a little bit. And then it opens up, you know, but this kind of its own, it's the only part from the point of view of the chicken. Not that I would have necessarily known that without looking at the lyrics here and then having that very comic opening sunshine that introduces the grunge part. You have like a disco section that comes back, but like this theme never comes back. You never get like you singing, not with the effect, something like this later in the song. And I don't think that the voice of the chicken ever comes back. It was just that as a story, it's starting with what's the chicken thinking about and so yeah maybe that did go on for <laughs> quite a while but there's the song's epic in a way that it has i don't know how many parts i haven't counted how many parts but there's often parts that maybe there are a few parts that don't come back either and that just sort of play off what came before so it goes on and on the tale i do feel like it's the spiraling out of his mind of this business dude who's just so obsessed by the chicken and is becoming the chicken quite a few structural things to talk about at the very least because you've got chicken dance being the big chorus thing and you feel like for the third chorus we'll just do where's my mail instead of <laughs> you know i see how it fits in the plot but in terms of like here's the uh hook that i've just sold you on well i'm gonna sing something <laughs> that sounds like it's a crazy person ranting about their mail instead of repeating the chicken i mean it you know comes back to chicken dance two lines later it's not a radical change but right there that you've written a whole story rather than we're stopping the story to do the chorus which is, I think, a more normal approach. Like, let's tell a story in the verses and then give you the thing to snap along and then we'll tell a little more of the story and maybe we'll switch it around. I just happened to, in a different podcast, be doing, as part of it, don't ask why, an analysis of the uh, Pina Colada song and the fact that, like, oh, we turn it around, that, yes, I like, you know, every chorus has a little different spin on it. Yeah, what is your take on sort of combining... You've got a, very, a lot of very catchy songs, but yet you want to keep the store going. And that might be an impulse to break things up because I, maybe I get bored and hearing the same chorus. Maybe that's just me and most people don't get bored of hearing it. So there's that impulse pulling it along. But also, again, this character that feels trapped and he's feeling fear and he's cracking up. It's as if he's singing the chorus and then he's diverting from the chorus. He's so mad at the end, I feel crazy mad that he's just now he's singing, where's my mail? I mean, his mail might be right in front of him, too. But he's digging through the garbage pail. He's looking for a certain piece of mail. This guy's going through a breakdown. I've had my own breakdowns, too. So I think maybe I know. <laughs> and so is the ooh la la just the expression of going crazy a little bit? Or was that a later addition in arrangement? you know, as you were actually getting into it with the band. That came from me right away with the song. Yeah, again, I just think all these voices entering this guy's head. Now there's a little, what is this little French voice coming in? Why is that there? Ooh la la, ooh la la. To me, it was French. It, why did it enter his head? I don't know. Part of the madness, I say. And you saw the video too. I did see the video. Yes, that definitely clarified the story. The video was uh, such a fun part of this project in particular because the song uh, lent itself so well to a video. And we work with this guy, John Lee, who's a friend of mine who he's gone on. I always feel like we gave him a start with this video, but he went on to do wonder shows. And I don't know if you ever saw that show and a bunch of adult swim shows. And he directed a film, Pee Wee's Big Holiday, I think it was called. It was like the last Pee Wee 
most recent Pee Wee film. But he went on to do that. But he, I thought he did a great job directing it. And it was fun to work with him. And we were filming this. When was this song from? Late 80s or whatever? 90s? Well, 97 <laughs> is when it's... But was this written quite a bit before that? Or this was written for this project? No, it was written for this. I just forget when it was. But at the time, I remember he filmed it all on... It was still 16 millimeter. We weren't doing any digital video. I don't even know if digital... Was digital video around then? Anyway, it didn't seem like it was. So we were doing all still on film. And we got a chicken from a live poultry store in Brooklyn. And I walked in and there were two older women on little stools with their feet. They were wearing boots, but their feet were in the kiddie pool. And they were breaking the necks of these chickens. And blood was going into the kiddie pool. And they are saying, what do you want? And I'm like, uh, I just need a live chicken. I just need it for the day. And the live chicken cost about $6. And then we took the chicken out. We filmed all over New York with that chicken. I felt like the chicken felt like, boy, this is great. I'm a star now. I'm out in the world. I'm living the life. But then at the end of the day, we were like, well, what do we do with the live chicken? We had to bring it back to the slaughterhouse. I always felt bad for that chicken looking up and going like, oh, well, I just had this wonderful day. I had a dream day being a movie star. And now you bring me back to this? Oh, no. So the actual chicken in the video arcade did not exist anymore for you just to go film it. It was right at a point where that had disappeared. The sign, I think there's a really brief segment where the sign is still up on the Mott Street Arcade. You, you know, we didn't show that barely enough. And then a friend painted uh, her interpretation of what the chicken arcade game might look like. You know, we had sort of a frame and I'm in there with the chicken mask on at one point. So uh, the arcade itself had disappeared by that point. So we built our own dreamlike version of what that box looked like. That whole video was really fun to do. <laughs> Just looking back at the music a little bit. So again, I was reading this as sort of a comment on grunge. Again, is there like an acoustic guitar and you version of this somewhere where you weren't quite sure what the dynamics were going to be? Or, or was this kind of mapped out from the start that we're going to have this big grungy basis Weezer-esque sort of thing? Maybe that's the influence of the time, late 90s, that that came in. But I just started it as a song I could play on guitar. And that was when I could actually play fairly well on my own <laughs> on guitar. So that one holds up, I think, as a song where you don't need any sort of other effects or anything like that. But yet the, again, like we were talking about with the rhythm section, it's so prominent. Like the bass is such a major part of the song. And these, you know, these licks on guitar that are, are holding things together. And there is a bit of a funk part there where like you're saying you know chicken <laughs> so and that's a bit chickeny guitar work to me some kind of scratchy nervous itchy guitar stuff but it's also a bit funky well and that's what's great that you know you've got this underlying grunge thing but everything else about the arrangement you know the fact that you're then throwing in string is like weezer's not going to do that nirvana's not going to do that and yeah, any sort of comments on, again, maybe this is a production question, but on that you've got strings in the band, but yet you like to bring horns in a lot. I don't think, <laughs> I wasn't purposely picking three horn songs, but that's what came out here. Horns tend to just blast strings <laughs> off the stage. What is the thought on how to balance those and where the strings are doing things and where the horns are coming in? I have a vague memory of how it goes. I think we often have a good way of just balancing the two. I don't know what it takes to balance the two, but I know what you're saying, that the horns could really just blast the strings out of there. I think they are weaving in and out and giving each their their moment. So there's a way to balance it, and that's maybe just a way we've always thought. Again, I'll say Mark Lerner again as a, a guy who really is has an ear for this and is balancing those elements and coming up, uh, doing the composition when it comes to those parts. I mean, it's a great tool in the box 
box for instant changes in dynamics that you can just let's add a little string thing here or just the violin and then add the cello under it and increase from there and then do the same with horns that you've got a few different layers there. I was listening at the it doesn't matter part at the end of the last song that we were just talking about. You know, it sounds like a big block of horns and I was listening closely. Oh, okay, actually the strings are under there. That's what the combined sound actually sounds like. And so maybe that's the ticket is that, you know, like rhythm guitar, you're not always paying attention to it. It's just that the strings are usually the luscious thing that is introduced that you pay attention to. But then if you're adding horns on top of that, well, then the the mind goes to the horn. That's fine. That's just the way the full orchestra is going to go. And you can always take the horns away and leave the strings and have that extra dynamic ability. I think that the fear would be is that you just uh, wash over the whole song too much with all of that. You feel like, just it's just so much. Why are they doing so much orchestration? But I hope that we are doing it in such a tasteful way that it's just all supporting the song and complimenting it. And nothing's just too overwhelming when it comes to that orchestration. I don't think we overdo it. Yeah, looking at live clips, it seems like the strings are very disciplined in terms of we're just staying out of even this whole song or, you know, this whole portion of this song. It's fine. It doesn't have to be a violin band because we have a violin and that's our lead player and does all the, you've got multiple lead players. It does not leave the guitar soloist enough room if the violin is doing that all the time. Right. I feel like they step in, they have their tasty, juicy parts, and then they they, they step back a bit. I recall in college, I don't know, I was always very attracted to very arranged music. And I would try to, when auditioning new like lead guitarists in my college band, like, okay, have you ever been in orchestra? Pretend you're an oboe. Sometimes the oboe plays, sometimes the oboe doesn't play. It's just by default, especially if you only have a four or five piece band, everybody's playing all the time. And it just seems, you know, especially when you get a band of your size, you got to have more maturity and discipline and communication than that. That's the fear with some players, too. That's a tendency when you have a real hotshot guitar player, maybe. I always played with a saxophone player at one point who maybe was had that tendency. There's a certain tendency, maybe with a few musicians who want to spray all over everything and never stop and, you know, just really soak down the song with their solos and, and never stop the solo. The solo never stops sometimes with a few people. So it's good to know when to pull back, you know, have the parts that support it. Like you said, you want the oboe to play this part, clarinet to play that part in an orchestra. Same here with these songs. Well, it's also, I guess, when you're facing an audience who is not familiar with your material, if you don't do that at this point, but the fact that you have humor in the lyrics, like that's a a good way to sell. Even if it's going to take you three listens to this song before you understand musically what's going on, I can be painting some, doing a character voice or, you know, telling some story that you at least get a gist of and that can sell it. Also having a really good guitarist responding to me, people can say ooh and ah to all the pretty sounds that are coming out of the horns and strings mixing or the cool guitar licks because that stuff at least you can get on first listen. Like I think for most pop music, you got to listen to something through one of your albums three times in order to make heads or tails of it. Like listening to Satsuma, that's about how long it took before like, okay, there's lots of different sounds going on here, but I'm not really sure what other than this is an eclectic fun time. But yeah. Yeah, having the strong band makes it accessible and brings you in. And then you're somebody, and hopefully others will sit back and say, like, what is he actually talking about here? I mean, I'm thinking on the new Satsuma record here, we have that Bluebird song. And when you first hear it, to me, it's very accessible. This sounds a bit like 
John Fogarty, Creedence Clearwater, maybe, bassist overall on that song. And so you go along and say, this is a basic rock song. But what's it about? You know, you'd have to dig in and, and even read what we have here that it's based on this Kurt Vonnegut book of essays. Well, that sounds like a great way to segue to introducing the last song here, Soul Deliverer, also from the new album, which, you know, has got, it's like a Rolling Stones quality. <laughs> <laughs> punching you and having these great bluesy licks. And can you say a little about what this song means or where this came from before folks hear it? Soul Deliverer here is based on Taya Obrecht. Uh, she's a young author who wrote this book, The Tiger's Wife. I think that might have been her first novel, but it's a really brilliant fantasy novel. And there's a character in this book called The Deathless Man, and he's always smiling, smiling all the time, and he's doomed to roam the earth for eternity, and he's collecting souls. And he can tell you how long you have to live by looking at the grounds inside your coffee cup. Here, have a cup of coffee. Drink, look in. He'd go, oh, you have five years left. Sorry. So there's his voice going on. There's a bit of an, I think, the person's voice of who's dealing with the deathless man going on too. And sometimes might always might not always be clear whose voice is coming in at what point. But I think I'm dealing with two voices here in the song of the deathless man who's the soul deliverer, who's taking everyone's soul and shipping them off. I pictured him, it's not in the book this way, but I pictured the guy delivering souls to the next level, the next dimension, to heaven, wherever, as sort of the a UPS guy in his brown shorts working at a almost like a packaging kind of place, packing up the souls and getting them out. And in the book, she says, too, that it takes the process to deliver a soul takes about 40 days to, you know, that limbo. There's a limbo zone where you have to go through. So it's about 40 days before you totally leave this planet and move to the next sphere, dimension, area, whatever it might be. Before I let you go, let me, let me just ask you a couple more things. So you seem to have moved to an EP. You know, you're calling it the new album, but it's six songs. I see we already have birds to sing with seven songs. That's actually plenty in a, especially in a digital format to sort of feast on. But I still have projects that like, Oh, I've only got eight of the songs done. I don't think I could release it like that. I need to finish the last four that I meant to do add on. Can you say sort of how this is coming from your second album being what, 27, 18 or 20? <laughs> yeah, that was the most ambitious. The reason in particular that this album is, is six is we, I think we would have had more songs. We started it right before the lockdown. I have a few more songs in the hopper that we're, you know, we were working on, but we were all together working on the basic tracks. And I think we really would have made this a longer album if we uh, were together and had the time. But then when the pandemic struck and the outbreak struck, we just said, you know what? We have six songs. They actually add up to about almost 30 minutes, I think. And uh, we said, well, let's just go with the EP format. So it was really the pandemic that drove the six song EP format in this case. So does that mean you can, assuming this goes away, at some point that you're going to be ready to go with the next batch. I have to say lockdown's been good for me. I've just been sitting down in the basement where I am right now and I've been writing a lot on piano more for whatever reason. And I feel like I'm stacking up the songs and ready to get back with the band. We just haven't been back together at all. I mean, the most back we've been, I think, is when we did that video for one of the songs, the Bluebird song. We all did a Zoom call and we all worked that into the video. But um, yeah, it'll be great to get back and work on the next one. And I would imagine it'll be longer because hopefully the pandemic will have lifted. We can get together for a long time and, and do more songs. Luckily with this one, you know, we had the six songs. We had all the basic tracks done for those six songs. We even had the horns done. This was back before March. And then it hit. And then we still had overdubs to do, but we could do the overdubs long distance. I know Dave 
did some cello part from upstate and, and Mark is upstate too. And he, they recorded up there and I don't know how you do all the technical stuff, but they were able to make the digital files and, you know, ship it to Al who blended it all in nicely. So there was, there were some overdubs during the lockdown period. So Al is a professional audio guy, but everybody else has day jobs. Is that a fair? Yeah, that is his day job. He runs Dubway Studios, which is, is which is a great studio. Go there, everybody. It's at the lower end of Manhattan, right by the bull, you know, in Wall Street, where that statue of the bull is. And uh, he's been running Dubway for decades and decades. And, you know, he had first had the studio up by the, the Port Authority in the music building and started with eight tracks. And now he's got the full blown zillion track studio. And then the rest of everyone else does have day jobs, right? And his is a day job, too. Just happens to be in music more so than anyone else in the band. And has it been entirely consistent lineup since Two Legs Bad, since since the 90s, at least? Since the 90s, yeah. It's been everyone there on Two Legs Bad is here today. Probably It Likes Me was a different lineup. So when was that? You know, early 90s. So maybe right after that, the lineup as it is today solidified. So it's been decades with the same six people. I guess you just, everybody's then at an age. When did you, when you're doing this late 80s one, so you were all at NYU or something? Is that, was it during college, shortly after? Yeah, shortly after college, late 80s, brought together the first iteration of the band. And then people that age, besides whatever ego issues they, they have, don't necessarily know where they're going to stay. I'm just wondering, what is the secret to this stability and longevity, given that you are the sole songwriter that has been, there have always been, especially drummers, that often they, they see their drumming as almost an athletic activity or something. Like, I could do it here, I could do it there. Like You're saying they're so unreliable. I've gone through a lot of drummers, let me put it that way. Unless <laughs> unless they're all like also songwriters. That if you have a, you know, we are songwriters working together and that is the secret of our connection. Otherwise, it just has to rely on what, friendship and mutual respect? And... <laughs> As corny as it sounds, I think that is the bond for us is that we're just such great friends and it's just worked out that way. Yeah, I can't totally explain it, but I always had great shows too, great fan base that doesn't seem to, I mean, it grows and ebbs and <laughs> it gets bigger and smaller, but they're there. You know, we keep having great shows in New York at Rockwood Musical and at Barbes. And I think that's always just kept us going, that there's just been a real good minor but strong fan base that's been there for us. So not a lot of touring. You're just kind of doing the... When I reach a certain age, I switch to a sort of what I call a school play model of gigs of like, we're going to work <laughs> up a thing and then we're going to play once every four months or whatever and it's going to be a really good show as opposed to like, we just got to get there out there every week somewhere. And that seems to be the thing that makes you lose band members because they get burned out from that. Right. We've really just been doing the shows in New York, in New York City for you know the past decade or so but occasionally you know we'll spring out there'll be some show philadelphia wherever for us that's a big journey <laughs> you know we did more touring earlier on and played in canada and you know out to chicago wherever we played around we did a great show in berlin one brief sprint to berlin we did <laughs> so was that around the two legs bad period because i saw that chicken dance is like your number one song on Spotify. i didn't know if that was like the breakout album and then everything else has been sort of the mature work that we don't try to push so hard yeah, I think there was a big push with that record, and we played it a lot more in the United States around and into Canada. The Berlin thing was earlier back in the late 80s, where we it was just a one-off. There was a Berlin Independence Days. We played in between Mud Honey 
and Buzzcocks. <laughs> Believe it or not, it was called Buzzcocks FOC at the time or something. Flag of Convenience, Buzzcocks. It was one of the members from Buzzcocks. We still say it was Buzzcocks. It was a bit odd, though, because Mudhoney and Buzzcocks, those were the sounds of the bands playing. And then us in the middle of those two was uh, maybe not a, a marriage made in heaven. <laughs> you know, that we're a bit jarring from them. But it all worked. It all it was always fine. It's alternative. Whatever the hell that means. <laughs> it was all alternative. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for doing this. It was great to have some leisure time. I had a good three months to sink into your catalog and listen to things repeatedly because I was like, this is a band that I actually like all these songs. So, Well, that's great to hear. That's great. And I'm just delving into some of your songs now, too. And I see, I mean, you definitely have your own weirdness and humor. Maybe you're a bit more, I haven't listened to everything yet, obviously, but the, on a folky side. And when you said the Charlie Brown maybe influence with you a bit, and I feel I feel an affinity with Charlie Brown too. I mean, I have the round head, and just that you know that sense. There's humor, and there's also that sort of despair with Charlie Brown, and things go wrong. And I feel like those elements that all makes sense to me with uh, a lot of my songs.
water for my lunch To listen, I'll meet you at the crossroads But for now, let me enjoy my John Dorian Rakia And I'm gonna keep that jungle book with me for now Besides, you'll get it on the final day I see ya I know, I know, my days are numbered From the crowds inside my car I think next time I'll skip the coffee And get water Thanks so much to Don, another one I really enjoyed, both talking to him and prepping. I'm a longtime fan, as my listeners probably know, of bands like Camper Van Beethoven and They Might Be Giants, and Life in a Blender is a great find in that vein. You can learn more about them at lifeinablender.net. Maybe go check out their Bandcamp page. They've got some funny videos I will link to from the blog post accompanying this at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. We are, of course, a part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network. You may well be listening to this on the PEL feed, but I'm hoping you'll subscribe directly at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or look up Nakedly Examined Music on your desired podcast app. And while you are there on our Apple podcast page or wherever, I would love if you would leave a rating or review. In fact, there is a new widget on nakedlyexaminedmusic.com in the upper right that makes it super easy to rate and review the show. The two episodes that I now have in the hopper are with Larry Keel, who you'll hear next, and Robert Forster of the Go-Betweens. Super excited about that one. I'm always open to your suggestions or volunteer yourself. The guest I have after Robert is someone who reached out to me directly saying you should cover my music and I loved it and will be doing so. If you want to support the show and never have to hear me read commercials again, please do so at patreon.com slash nakedly examined music. And with your Patreon subscription, you will get a URL to a new version of the feed with all the ad-free episodes, some bonus content. And as I said, I have now started posting my notes. It's just a Google Doc, but the actual thing that I use to prep for this, where I map out the songs, paste in the lyrics, a fun accompaniment for you while listening to the show. So, per usual, keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. Just grass.